Ephesians 5, verse 15, Paul says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And Father, we just ask as we continue now in worship, as we've sang and prayed and fellowshiped and Lord, done other things to worship and to honor you. We want to do the same now by giving our fullest attention to what the Spirit of God would say to us through the Word of God. So, Lord, prepare us accordingly. We ask that you would speak now to us by your Spirit through what your Spirit has already spoken to us right here in the Word of God. Bless your Word, Lord. You know what we're asking, and we pray that we could hear your voice now. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, this past Wednesday evening, we studied through Psalm 90. We've been going through the book of Psalms on Wednesday nights. And as we went through Psalm 90, we came to that set of verses that tells us this, that the days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength, if God gives you an extra measure of strength, 80 years, it says, and then they're cut off and we fly away. That is our spirit departs from our physical body. And then it said this in connection to that. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And as we looked at those verses this Wednesday night from Psalm 90, of course, they talk about the description of that God has given to us a limited number of days and that it is very important that we live in light of that reality, that the Holy Spirit through Moses, as those things were recorded, told us very plainly, even as Psalm 139 tells us, that all of our days are written in God's book before one of them ever comes to be. And there is a set number of days that every human being has in their journey on this earth. And the Bible even goes so far to give us a generic understanding to say that the days of our lives typically are about 70 years. And even to this day with modern technology and all the wonderful things that we can do with medical practice, still, if you look statistically, that is pretty accurate. It's almost as if God knew better even thousands and thousands of years ago that his spirit understood about what the duration of a human life would be. About 70 years, if by reason of strength, the average person may make it to 80 years. That's typically sort of an average. Of course, there are exceptions. But again, it's so important to think about that. And we talked about Wednesday evening, how we should live in light of that reality. Again, if we just use generic numbers, because that means if on average you live 75 years, that means this morning, if you're 25 years old, you've already lived a third of your life. If you're 50 years old, you've already lived two-thirds of your life. You only have a third of your life left. If you want to go from there, as we did Wednesday night, you can start figuring out the probabilities. 18% of your life, 10% of your life, may only be 5% of your life left still to live. And therefore, I think recognizing that, that should cause us to say, wow. Wow, Lord, that kind of sets things in perspective. I don't want to use the last 25% of my life. I don't want to use the last 50% of my life. I've already lived half of it. Lord, how do I want to use the... And, and it kind of sobers us into a good reality. It shouldn't depress us. If anything, it should stimulate us that we would say, as the psalmist told us, teach us to number our days. God actually tells us, go ahead, calculate it, that you would gain a heart of wisdom. That is, that you'd live wisely that you would live well. The idea is that we wouldn't waste any of our days, that we wouldn't waste even a day because every day is valuable, that we wouldn't waste a day and certainly that we wouldn't waste our life, but that we would make good use of it instead, that we'd value each day 
And embracing this concept is important to live as God intends. And that's why I wanted to look particularly at Ephesians 5 and this passage this morning, because I think it's sort of the New Testament companion to those very verses. To me, this is the New Testament companion to those verses in Psalm 90. Look what we're coming into here, this section where very clearly you can tell the Holy Spirit is prompting us in regards to how we walk out or live out our journey on this earth. And when we come to this section in Ephesians 5, just for sake of context, Paul specifically in chapter 4 transitioned to this thought of walking worthy of the calling that we've received. That is, the Lord's called you to follow him as a Christian, and the Bible says, therefore, in light of this incredible calling, the forgiveness of sins, you've been saved and you're destined for heaven, the Bible says, walk worthy of that. Walk worthy of that wonderful calling that you've received as a Christian. Live your life to the fullest as a follower of Jesus. And Ephesians 4 through chapter 6 really describe what that looks like in a fuller sense, to walk worthy of the Christian calling. In the prior verses, just to where we're at here, beginning in verse 15, the very last thing Paul just said under the leading of the Holy Spirit was he really gave to the Ephesian Christians and to you and I as well a spiritual wake-up call. A spiritual wake-up call. The last thing he just said in verse 14, therefore he says, awake you who sleep. In other words, he's saying, woke some of you up already. It only takes me six and a half minutes to put some asleep. Wake up, he says. And sometimes, if we were all to be honest, we all sometimes need a little wake-up call in life, right? Generally. And I think that's true spiritually, too. We all kind of need every once in a while a spiritual wake-up call. And that's a good thing when God rouses us from our lethargy or complacency once in a while. That's a very, very healthy thing. And God is saying to our hearts this morning, listen, if you claim to be a Christian, be all in. Live fully. Your days are numbered. Live fully, make the most of this opportunity to follow Christ. And he begins here in these verses telling us, I believe, how to do that. He says, first of all, verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly, he says, not as fools, but as wise. So the first thing he tells us here in verse 15 is that as a Christian, we should live our life purposefully. That is, we should be caring about and considering the steps that we take. It should matter to us. I mean, it should matter to any person how they live their life, but how much more when you're a follower of Christ? How much more when you're representing Jesus, when you're seeking to follow God's plan for your life, that you should live purposefully caring about and considering the steps that you take? He tells us here in regards to our walk, which speaks of the Christian life, taking steps, walking with God and fellowship. He says, notice, walk, he uses the word circumspectly. And that word circumspectly comes from two words. The first word, circum, the beginning part of the word, speaks of circle or round. And the second part of the word, spect, where we get our English word spectacle, the idea is to look or to see or, or to pay attention. So the idea of circumspectly, to live circumspectly, the idea is to be living in a way where you are looking around, paying attention to how you're walking. The idea here is paying close attention to the steps that you take as you walk, being aware of your surroundings so you don't trip over this or get ensnared in that or so that you don't wander off course and not follow the path that God intends. It's one who's considering their circumstances and the possible consequences before they act, before the steps that they take because they know it matters. The idea, if I could illustrate, it's how a soldier in combat should walk through a combat zone or particularly if they're walking through something they know is a potential minefield, right? You'd want to be looking around. You want to pay attention because every step really matters. One wrong step and you step on a landmine, drastic changes, so because your safety matters, because you want to continue to be effective in what you're doing, that soldier wants to avoid injuries, so they, they walk circumspectly. They're paying attention to what's going on around them. They're not falling asleep at the wheel. They're considering before they take certain steps, is that a good step as well as or would that be a bad step? 
And they actually are proactive and purposely paying attention to that. It's the same way that an acrobat would walk if they were crossing a tightrope 50 foot up in the air. In fact, the actual Greek word here is acrobos. That should sound familiar. It's where we get our English word acrobat. And so this is the idea that when you're walking a tightrope 50 foot up in the air and there's no net underneath, you want to get to the destination. Every step matters. Not some steps, every step. Every step matters if you want to get to that destination and you don't want to fail or fall along the way. And it's important that we realize because these are even metaphors the scripture gives to us, right? That, that as Christians, we are in a spiritual battle, that it's not a playground. It's, it's, a, it's a battleground. The spiritual life is portrayed as a battleground and that we're to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. The Bible also uses athletic analogies continuously. And the idea there, again, if we think from that perspective, we could illustrate the idea of the concept being conveyed here is, let's say, for example, you're an Olympic athlete and you train and you train and it's your whole life goal and eventually you get an opportunity to participate in the Olympic Games in your event. You know as well as I do, anyone who's in that position, it matters tremendously to them how they perform. Why? Because they may never get another opportunity to participate in that event. And you know what? You only get one opportunity to live this life. You only get one occasion to do it right or to redo it better. And that's the glory of coming to Jesus. You get a brand new life. And so therefore, you may never get the opportunity again to run the race for Jesus Christ. Now is your opportunity. The baton is in our hand in this generation. And so therefore, we don't want to be aimless and purposeful. We don't want to live thoughtlessly and carelessly. We don't want to slip into being complacent and just kind of, you know, buy our time up until we eventually just make it into heaven and get out of this world. Instead, we should be living intentionally and purposely with a degree of focus and purposefulness in our Christian walk. And I think to illustrate that point, that's why he says in the remainder of the verse that we're not to be living, notice, as fools, but to be living as wise people. In other words, he's saying life matters, so don't be foolish as a Christian. Live wisely as a Christian. Take advantage of the opportunity. Fools care nothing and they, they don't consider anything beyond the present moment or their current feelings. Wise people consider that their actions today are going to have some impact and influence on what happens tomorrow and in their future, whether that's bad consequences or whether it's the opposite of that, beneficial outcomes because of good and purposeful decisions. So the idea here is to live purposely where we aim at something, to pay attention to how we're living their life. Again, you've been selected for a really high honor to serve the king of kings, to live for Jesus. So that's why he's telling us, walk worthy. As you this morning, each of your steps matter. Are you really paying attention to the steps you're taking in your life? Are you really consciously thinking about that and, and circumspectly paying attention and really valuing the importance of every step and every day? Because I'll tell you something, your steps will determine your direction. Whatever steps you take are going to determine your direction. And whatever direction you end up heading in, that is going to result in the destination of the kind of life you're going to experience. That makes sense? Your steps, each one is going to determine the direction that you go. And the direction that you go is going to end up determining the destination, which ends up being the kind of life that you will experience. You know, there's this amazing thing of God's control and yet our choices. And I can tell you something this morning. We don't have control over our circumstances. That's the part we have to get over. We, shouldn't, we don't have control over circumstances. Circumstances in this life and in this world are going to happen. We don't have control over our circumstances, but we do have control over our choices. And that's powerful. Circumstances are going to happen, but God's given us the freedom to control our choices, and we can make incredibly good choices and reap benefit, or we can make incredibly bad choices and reap detriment and problems. So he says here, be purposeful, pay attention. It matters, the steps that you take. Be purposeful in the way that you live. He then goes on, verse 16, to say how another way to do that, to be redeeming the time because the days are evil. 
you know, one of the wisest ways you can make good and godly choices and live purposefully is to pay attention how you spend or invest your time, particularly in ways that matter, in ways that have value, that's spiritual, that's eternal. One of the first indications of a wise person is how they spend their time. I think we'd all agree on that. One of the clearest indicators of someone who is living wisely is how that person manages and invests and utilizes time. See, because we all have an equal amount of time. That's something God has given freely to all of us. We may not all have the same start in life. We may not all get the same opportunities. We may not all have the same background. Or There's a lot of differences in those things. But the one thing that we do all equally share is we all get 60 seconds in every minute. We get seven days a week. We get the same amount of days in a year. Everybody has an equal amount of time. It is one resource. Somebody may have way more money than you, but you have the exact same amount of time that they do. And God's given us equally an amount of time. And so it's an extremely valuable and important resource. The question then becomes, how do we spend our time? How do we invest that time? That makes a huge difference. In other words, what do we spend our time on? We all have the same amount of time, but what do we spend it on? What do we invest time in? And, and how much time do we spend on particular things? Again, using moderation, thinking strategically. Okay, time is something that we should invest well. Some people invest very well financially, but they're very poor stewards with their time. Time is valuable. Take advantage of the opportunity of time and, and realize, listen, folks, God's value system is so much different than the world's value system. That's why a lot of people in this world spend time very poorly because their value system is wrong. Look at the word of God and look what God's value system is. God's value system is spiritual and eternal things and people and families and, and things that matter eternally not things that are tangible and one day pass away. Have God's value system and let God's value system drive the way that you manage and invest and spend your time. And here he even says in verse 16 that we should be particularly redeeming the time. Now, now it, that idea of redeeming the time, he's speaking there of buying up an opportunity. Th that's the concept there. When he says redeem the time, the language literally means to buy up the opportunity to capitalize. The idea is to capitalize on a good deal when you see it in the marketplace. That's the picture there, right? We just went through what we call Black Friday, and some of you out there are trying to capitalize on the good deals and good opportunities. And all the stores are going, you thought it was a good deal? Thanks for your money, right? But, but some, people, some people really have a knack for finding good deals, right? We have a few in our family. I won't drop names. They, they can find a good deal. They can find a good deal, and they redeem it, and they capitalize. Hey, that is a good deal, and they capitalize on a good deal. That's the idea. It's sometimes there's an opportune situation. There's a really great opportunity, and you carpe diem, we say, seize the day. Capitalize on the opportunity. This is the picture. This is the image here, making the most of opportunities that arise that God sets before us. It's what Esther's wise uncle conveyed to her when she found herself, after a series of very hard life events, being married to a pagan king. And remember, he said to her, listen, God will raise up deliverance if you don't speak up and do something from your position of privilege. God will still do what God's going to do. But how do you know if maybe God brought you to the kingdom for such a time as this? In other words, he was saying to her, Esther, don't miss the opportunity that God's given to you. He's given you that opportunity. He could have given that opportunity to anyone, but he's offering you a strategic opportunity, a window, a chance. And he says, if you don't capitalize on it, it's not going to frustrate what God's going to do, but God's privileging you with this opportunity. Are you going to embrace it? Are you going to capitalize on it? Are you going to redeem that? Are you going to buy up the opportunity and cash in on it? And folks, opportunities do arise by God's design. And I tell you, there are times when those opportunities arise, they're windows, they're open doors, they're divine appointments, and God sets them before us. 
And God wants us to redeem the time in those moments, to capitalize on those occasions. And if we don't, I do believe sometimes that opportunity will pass. That occasion may not be there. Look, that's one of the things that got me married. When I saw my wife, I thought that is an opportunity right there. And if I don't capitalize on that deal, there are plenty of other guys that are going to capitalize on that deal. I didn't have to get real spiritual about whether I should marry or not. I knew that is a smoking deal. <laughs> Ain't many more of them going to come. Capitalize. Take advantage. And sometimes maybe it's a conversation, and you can tell the conversation is seeming to open towards spiritual things. Don't miss the opportunity. Redeem the moment. Capitalize on that opportunity. Sometimes God presents occasions and opportunities for us to walk into things. Look, those are times where we need to redeem that moment. Don't miss it because that opportunity could pass. And who knows what God would have done if you would have stepped into that situation and trusted him or let God work. And let me say this, redemption, when we talk about redeeming, redemption was a price being paid. So there was a cost. If you redeemed a loved one who fell into slavery in the Old Testament, you paid a price to redeem. So redeeming the time may cost you something. There may be a personal cost to it. It may cost you something to redeem the time for God's purpose instead of some worldly pursuit, but it's a good and valuable thing. It's an opportunity for God. It's an opportunity for what God wants or what God's will is. And so therefore, it's well worth the personal cost. You know, Jesus said it this way. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. And what Jesus was indicating when he conveyed that was many are given an opportunity but only a few take advantage of the opportunity. Many have an opportunity presented to them, but a lot of times people pass up opportunities, whether it's because of a lack of faith and trust in the Lord, or it's just human selfishness, or whatever, you know, all the different things that can cause us. Just being you know, not sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So when we see that opportunity, we want to redeem it and capitalize on it. One man said this. He said, time misspent is not time lived. It's time lost. And you can't get back time. Boy, that's so true. You can't get it back. So be strategic with your time. Listen, the past is gone. The Bible says, forget what's behind. Reach forward towards what's ahead. You, the past is done with. God can do beautiful things. You can give God the ashes and he can make beauty out of it. It doesn't matter what the past is. The present is here and the future is still to come. So be strategic and look to what God's word says matters and use your time that way. God, what's your value system? And look, this is why this is important. He offers a reason in the end of verse 16. Notice he says, because the days are evil. Notice, the ungodly world offers plenty of opportunity for things to do with your time and my time too. And so it's almost as if you can sense God saying here, look, I want you to be preoccupied with your time, with good things and godly things. And, and, because if you do that, then if you're busy in that opportunity, you won't take the devil's opportunities because they will come. He says, look, redeem the time because the days we live in are evil. Now, if Paul was saying that of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in his day, how much more are we finding that reality in a deteriorating world that's falling apart today? You know, the word that Paul uses there, the word evil, there are two words for evil in the Greek. One is a word that speaks of being evil in a passive sense. The idea is just being evil and being content to just be grouchy and evil and mean and, and nasty and stay in your house and be that way. The other word evil that's used in the Greek language is not a passive word. It's an aggressive word. The idea is it's a word that's pernicious. The idea it's an evil that's not content unless it's drawing other people into participating in evil too. So it's an evil that's aggressively trying to allure others and draw others and pollute others. That's the word that Paul uses there. The days are evil. They're aggressively evil. They want to allure you and draw you into that evil to make you participate. And look, every day there are constant pressures to pull you and I into evil things, right? Every day there are temptations towards sin and constant pressures. In Mark 4, Jesus cautioned us of this ruining our spiritual lives. Jesus warned of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness 
of riches and the desires for other things entering into the life of his follower. And he says, and it chokes out the word of God and you become unfruitful in your spiritual life. So the Bible says, look, redeem the time because the days are evil out there. And the idea is that if we're not occupied doing what God intends, you will be drawn into error that much more easily. Let me say that again. If you and I are not occupied doing what God intends, redeeming the time, then we will get occupied with the opportunities to do what's sinful and evil because there are opportunities to do both constantly. And the evil is very aggressive. So it's so important that we be intentionally using our time in a very purposeful way, redeeming the opportunities to serve and to live for God. Now, since God gives us opportunities and the world offers evil opportunities, that's why verse 17 says, therefore, do not be unwise. He comes back to the same thing again, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So since our life does not belong to ourselves, right? We saw in Corinthians, your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. So since my life does not belong to me, but as a Christian, truly it belongs to Jesus Christ. Therefore, I should understand and want to know not what my will is, but what the Lord's will is for my life, which technically is not my own anymore. It belongs to him. And so he says here, again, don't be unwise or foolish. That is, don't live outside of the Lord's will, how you think is best, what you feel is best. That's the great human error, right? I'm a Christian. I'm not really living in blatant sin, but uh, you know, I kind of want to do my thing, and I'm just going to ask God to bless my path or my course instead of saying, Lord, it's not my life. It's not my course for me to live as Christ or whatever you want for my life. That's what I want. That's what I want to yield to. You, you choose for me, Lord. You know, I pray that more and more. The older I get in my relationship with the Lord, I, I, I'm at a point now where I just say, Lord, would you just please choose for me? Take away my options. <laughs> just choose for me, please. Because I truly want what you want because you know what's way better for me. And so we want to understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, when we talk about the Lord's will, we're talking about his desires his intentions for our lives. Now, the will of the Lord, I think, in two senses. One, just in a general sense. There are clear things that are the will of the Lord that matter and that are kind of generically true for all of our lives. What you're holding, hopefully, in your lap this morning is a whole lot of pages about the will of the Lord. So as we get to know the word of God, we need to get to know the will of God. And there are a lot of things that for all of us, they are clearly the will of the Lord things that we should be doing, things that we should not be doing, and we want to understand the will of the Lord so that we can live in the will of the Lord and walk in the will of the Lord. But then there are specific things, unique things, that are different from my life, from your life. Specific callings, plans, purposes, journeys. You know, my kids are getting older now. They're, you know, two of them are married, and I, and I try and remind them periodically, listen, your journey may not be like me and your mother's. You walk with Jesus, but you need to figure out your journey and what the Lord specifically is going to do in your life, in your family. And there are unique, specific plans and purposes for all of us. And so we want to know what those things are, to understand the will of the Lord for your life uniquely as a person, as a family, and to understand what that is. The term he uses there, understand, is a beautiful term. It literally is a term that speaks of putting pieces together to be able to grasp hold of what's going on. If I could illustrate the idea of when he says, understand the will of the Lord, it's like looking at an individual puzzle pieces to try and figure out the big picture, right? Maybe we probably don't put together puzzles anymore, but that's the idea. You got all these puzzle pieces and you're looking at the pieces trying to see the big picture. And this is the idea here of understanding the will of the Lord, assembling what facts you have, looking at the circumstances of what's going on in your life, seeing what God's doing paying attention to what's going on in your heart and your desires and just kind of what's transpiring and where you're at and where you're going and considering what you currently have at your disposal and, and using knowledge and being prayerful and not just being prayerful, but also being practical. God does work in supernaturally natural ways and paying attention to those things. And the idea is so whereby God wants us to pay attention to discern his will so that kind of we go through this process, we're praying and thinking and talking and getting counsel. We start to go, I see this and I see this. Okay, I see it. Oh, yeah, I see it. 
I think I see what God's doing here. I, th- I think I can see it now. And so that when we see it, then we can pursue it and walk that out. And as we understand his will, then we ultimately follow his will. And that's what's best those to please the Lord as well as what works best for our lives. And what helps us to better understand the will of the Lord? Well, I can tell you one very simple thing. That's to know what matters to the Lord. And I'll tell you how you get to know what matters to someone. You spend time with them, right? I mean, it's, it's a relational concept. As we spend time with someone, we understand what pleases to them, what makes them happy, what honors them, what blesses them. And so you need to spend time with someone to understand what their will and their heart is. And the same is true spiritually. This morning, I encourage you, take an opportunity, do a moment of inventory. Sincerely, how are you doing in regards to spending time with the Lord? I'm not talking about just coming to church. I'm talking about spending time with the Lord. I'm talking about at some point in your day, every day, understanding the value of redeeming the time, some part of your day, and finding, not just finding, let me change that, making an opportunity to put away your phone and your computer to get away from every human being and every device and to find a place where there's quiet, solitude. And whether it is for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just spending time alone with God and talking to the Lord about what's going on in your life and asking for his help and just talking things through with him and then opening his word and letting him speak to you through what he has spoken that you can understand the will of the Lord. And I tell you, it is as we spend time alone with the Lord, clarity comes in our reasoning and we better understand the will of the Lord. For some of you, you need to get back to the discipline of spending a little time every day alone with the Lord. So valuable. Look, I'm not telling you to make unrealistic attempts to do, oh, I'm I'm two hours a day. No. Lord, I'm going to give you 15 minutes of every day. 15 minutes of every day. And I hope 15 minutes turns into 30 minutes, and 30 minutes turns into, oh, I can't believe an hour went... However that unfolds, whether it's the morning, the afternoon, eat lunch with Jesus, talk to Jesus before you go to bed. If you have to, lock yourself in your bathroom while your kids scream for 20 minutes. I don't care. But spend time with the Lord. So valuable. So valuable to understand his will, to help you walk in his will. Then he says, verse 18, and do not be drunk with wine. He says, in which is dissipation. The idea is wasteful, out of control living but be filled with the Spirit. So notice, to live properly, what or who is influencing our life really matters. In order to live properly, in order to understand and do the will of the Lord, what or who is influencing our life really, really matters. Notice the negative command first, verse 18, speaks of something of influence. He says, do not be drunk with wine. Do not become intoxicated with drinking alcoholic beverages where you come under the influence and the control of that alcoholic stimulant in your life, where it has an effect upon you, some foreign powers working. And he says, and what does it lead to? It leads to great things. No, the Bible says it leads to dissipation. The idea is it dissipates your life. The word speaks of of out-of-control living. It speaks of wasteful living. I don't know anybody at any point, who's ever gotten drunk and said something really productive happened when I got drunk? Right? I mean, no, something really dumb happened. Something really wasteful. I wasted some time. I, I wasted money. I, I wasted, and there's nothing valuable to becoming drunk with an alcoholic beverage or under any substance, whatever that may be, alcohol, drugs, and these just it's wasteful living. And here's what's interesting. Alcohol is a depressant. It slows down your ability to function properly. That's why your reasoning capacity is, is damaged. It inhibits your abilities, and it takes over control of all your ways, right? That's what alcohol does. When someone comes under the influence of alcohol, it affects the way they see things. It affects the way they make decisions, how they process things. It affects differently the way they behave, the way that they speak. And it's very interesting that that is the analogy that the Holy Spirit uses here in a Greek culture which was known for excessive drinking and drunkenness. 
The Greek culture was famous for that. And so he says here, look, don't be under the influence of wine, which makes you live out of control and wasteful in a way that you live, but contrast or comparison, however you want to look at it, be filled with the Spirit. So what God is saying is, look, in the same way when that person comes under the influence of alcohol or drugs, it controls the way they think, behave, speak, act, and decide. He's saying, look, I got a better idea. Be under the influence of something different. Be under the influence of being filled up, not with wine, but filled up with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) To be under the influence of the Spirit of God controlling and ruling you and and directing our judgment and our decisions and our thoughts. The idea is to be under total influence of the control of the Spirit. Every person here this morning who's a Christian, when you receive Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit entered inside of you. You were indwelt with the Spirit, and the Spirit of God lives within you. But yet we see these continual inferences in the Bible as well, speaking of occasions where people were filled with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. The idea is, is being, you know, filled to a level of fullness just you know the bible speaks of being filled with the fullness of god what's that mean i don't know but that sounds really good filled with the fullness of god there's there's none of me left i'm just full of god and this is the idea it's not how much of the holy spirit do i have it's how much of the of me does the holy spirit have am i under his control under his influence where he is directing me you know, the language here that's used of being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's actually, in the Greek, it's, it's a command. So the idea is not a suggestion. Well, if you want to grow in your Christian life, be open to being filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, no, it's, it's an imperative. It's a command. You are and I am to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God wants us to live a Spirit-filled life. And even as people make choices and do certain things to get drunk, he says in the same way, there are certain acts of participation of seeking to allow yourself to be filled with the spirit there are certain things that we should be doing as christians to be open to the filling of the spirit it's also in the passive tense which means to allow yourself to be filled it's not in the sense of aggressive where you do something to get filled and some people kind of portray the spiritual life that way. You know, they, they get all hyped up. and We're going to get a Holy Ghost meeting. And, and there's all this. It's like we're working up. We're going to work up the Spirit of God and work up the Spirit of God. No, the Bible says be filled. Not get all hyped up in emotionalism like a spiritual pep rally and think that somehow you're causing yourself and making yourself get filled. No, the Bible says be filled. That is, allow yourself and your heart to be in a condition where you can be filled and under the influence and the control of the Spirit. Because the Bible cautions us that there are things that we can do to resist the Holy Spirit's work in our life, right? The Bible says don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Literally a term of sorrow causing sadness or grief to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. When does that happen? When we live in conscious sin. And so if you're a Christian and you know better, and you're choosing to consciously participate in something that you know is wrong, the Bible says you're causing grief to the Holy Spirit because you're involving God in that. You're causing grief to the Spirit who dwells within you when you do those things. Don't do that, the Bible says. The Bible also says that we can quench the Holy Spirit, like kinking a garden hose, right? You ever kink a garden hose? And and, and so it cuts off the flow. And that's the idea. We can do certain things unbelief. There are things that we can do where we kind of quench the ministry of the Holy Spirit because we don't want to believe it. Maybe we were taught something different and we don't want to be open to what the Word of God says or we saw maybe some awkward things happen so all of a sudden we just throw the baby out with the bathroom. Whoa, hey, I saw people try and be open to the Spirit and they got really weird. Well, there's also something called the human spirit that people sometimes call the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Be open. I don't see anywhere where the Holy Spirit makes people do weird things in the Word of God, anyway. In the Word of God, we don't see weirdness. Are you afraid of God the Father? Of course not. Are you afraid of the Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Of course not. Why would you be afraid of the Holy Spirit? They're one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They all have the same nature. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they work in unison. So he says, allow yourself. We have to rid ourselves of anything that could hinder the Spirit's work 
directing and controlling our lives. And, and whether that's, again, a spirit of unbelief, whether that's sin in our life, I want to do, you want to do what you can to say, Lord, I want to be living a spirit-filled life. And the term as well is not only in the passive, but it's in the present tense. The idea is always continually be seeking after living a spirit-filled life. Even as some people keep repeatedly getting drunk, we should as Christians repeatedly keep saying, Lord, fill me. Fill me afresh, Lord. Uh, Lord, whatever that means, however that works, I don't need to understand it. Just, Lord, fill me with your spirit. I want to live more under the control of your spirit like an intoxicated person under alcohol is under the control, Lord. I want to be more under the control of your spirit. May your spirit take more control of my life. I want to live more yielded to the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. That should matter to us. Hey, today, what greatly influences your life? I pray more and more it would be the spirit that's directing the way that we're thinking, directing the way that we're behaving, guiding the way that we're speaking, that the Spirit would rule over us and control us. And almost as if to help us, in verses 19 through 21 here, he shows us, I believe, some of the fruit, some, and I emphasize some, not exhaustive, some of the fruit of what a Spirit-filled life looks like. What does it look like when someone lives under the influence of the Holy Spirit? When he's controlling us, it will manifest certain qualities in the way that we live out our lives. That when the Spirit is directing me and controlling me, the Spirit will alter me. He will bring changes to my natural condition. In the same way, when someone comes under the influence of alcohol, it alters them as a person, right? Well, this is the same concept here. When you come under the influence, the stimulant of the Holy Spirit, he will alter the way that you view things. He'll alter your decision-making. He'll alter your speech and your actions. And I think we find some indications of a spirit-filled life in these three verses. Look with me what he says. First thing he says, verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So one thing we see, he mentions a few examples, the spirit-filled life, when I live under the control and rule of the Holy Spirit, he will alter me in such a way where I will begin to have a strong influence on my communication. My words will start to be influenced in such a way where my speech will be foremost and more and more talking about the Lord and talking to the Lord. And it also, as he conveys in this verse here, it will also incline our heart to be more worshipful when the Spirit is working powerfully in our lives. Because by nature, we typically, our natural humanity does what? We spend time talking about things and saying things that usually aren't very helpful, that aren't very productive. The natural inclination of man is not to talk about the things of God and to talk about the Lord and what's honorable and helpful. The natural inclination of man is to complain about this and use their words for you know, unproductive conversations about that. And, and that's the natural indication. But God wants to change our hearts and change our communication because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And as the Spirit rules more and more within, and I come under the control of the Holy Spirit to a greater degree, when we're living in that way, our communication will be more Spirit-directed and honoring to the Lord. And it appears in verse 19, the main context here is about communicating in a worshipful way unto the Lord. The primary emphasis, it seems, notice of the verse, he describes various types of singing, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then he even says, singing and making melody in your heart unto the Lord. Now you may ask, if you have the New King James Version, as far as your translation this morning, well, what does that idea mean there about speaking to one another? I'm confused. Are we speaking to the Lord or are we speaking to one another? Well, I'll address that in a moment, but let's first consider the concept mainly of when the Spirit of God is at work in my life and he's controlling me to a greater degree, it's going to incline my heart to enjoy worship more. I'm going to have a more worshipful heart, a more thankful heart to the Lord. I'm going to want to express honor to him. In a primary way, God is intended for that to be done is through the powerful vehicle of music and song. God knows how powerful music is. And this is why he's given it to us as a primary way to worship him. And notice the variety of different forms of music 
which are all acceptable to God. Look at the verse there. He speaks of psalms. That's using scripture and taking scripture and setting it to musical tones. Another form of music he mentions, hymns. Hymns are compositions often of deep theological truth that are then set to harmony in music to help people memorize and express deep theological concepts. And then he mentions thirdly as well, spiritual songs, that is spirit-inspired praise courses, where the Holy Spirit gives to someone a song, a praise course that oftentimes in a different way expresses deep emotion to the Lord and deep passion towards the Lord. And all three of these, from God's perspective, God says, I like them all. Some churches don't, but God does. God says, you can sing me a psalm, a hymn, or a spiritual song. I'll take all three. Keep it interesting, God says, because they all have their value and their benefit. And notice, what's most important? Our heart being engaged, because you see what he says, verse 19, making melody in your heart to the Lord. And let me just say quickly, pay attention to that, because spirit-inspired praise and worship and singing unto the Lord should have our heart powerfully involved. It's not just mechanically mouthing the words. The Bible speaks of worshiping the Lord with a whole heart, our heart being moved with passion, with enthusiasm, our heart. He says, not just singing, make melody with your heart. Let your heart go. Let your heart be engaged. Let passion come forth. Why? Because we're trying to have an experience with God. We're trying to pour out our heart to God. There should be a passion in that. Notice, that's who it's all for. Not just a religious routine. It's not just a part of the church service. Well, what's your church? We sing a few songs, then we do a Bible study, then we sing a closing song. It's not a mechanical religious form. We've got to get away from that. We're singing to the Lord, to the Lord. That should inspire us to want to do it, and it should direct the way that we do it. We're trying to bless the Lord. So what's this idea then, as I said, of speaking to one another. Again, verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. I think the concept there is conveying this, is that God knows the powerful influence of music. That's why he wants to use it for us to sing to him. Because we all know music's powerful, right? Even in the world, ungodly, evil, music sticks with you. There's something powerful about music, singing. It moves people's hearts. And so God says, hey, I want something powerful happening between you and I in worship. But we also know, and God knows very well, that there's a secondary benefit when we worship among one another. In such a way, one translation rather this, singing amongst yourselves in the presence of others unto the Lord. And I think that's the concept here, is that when we sing to the Lord passionately, it inspires other people around us and it speaks to them. And any person who's been a part of a worship gathering knows this to some degree. Something very powerful happens and supernatural transpires when you start singing with a group of people or you even hear one other person singing, right? You want to get everybody out of a bad mood in your house? Just start singing a worship song. And it will start speaking to their heart. And it has a powerful influence. This is why I love worshiping with the people of the Lord. There is something very powerful. Is there not in a worship meeting? And just singing unto the Lord, it speaks to others. It inspires our hearts in good ways. He says another aspect of being filled with the Spirit, you can tell, verse 20, because you'll be giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Spirit alters my natural heart condition, it will give me and you a more content heart, a more grateful attitude a more appreciative heart. Again, because my natural attitude, your natural condition by default in our human nature is what? To be discontent, to be ungrateful as people oftentimes, to complain more easily and to be unappreciative, always wanting the next thing, always needing the better thing, you know, being upset about this and grumbling about that. I mean, that's our natural condition, but when the Spirit alters our heart, and we're being yielded to the Holy Spirit, look what he says happened. All of a sudden, we start giving thanks always for all things, even things that it wouldn't seem we should give thanks for. Lord, I thank you that though this isn't easy, Lord, I thank you for how you're using this to get me praying again. 
Thank you for how you're using this to keep me close to you, Lord. Thank you for how you're using this to teach me lessons, Lord. And all of a sudden, our, our shift in focus begins to happen and our heart begins to change and we find ourselves being more grateful and more appreciative and being more intentional about giving thankfulness and praise to the Lord because of what he's doing in our lives. And then finally, he says, verse 21, a third aspect of being filled with the Spirit is we'll also then be submitting to one another in the fear of God. You know, it is fair to say that the Spirit-filled life and living under the control of the Holy Spirit will alter us in a way where we certainly become more humble, we become more sacrificial, we become more servant-hearted in our attitudes instead of pursuing our will and our way, only thinking about ourselves and the way that we behave, conducting ourselves at times where instead of yielding to others, we're just pushing and striving for what we want or what we would prefer, where he says when the Spirit gets a hold of our heart, that struggle that we normally have with pride and being self-centered and wanting our way or being selfish, it starts to get subdued. And as the love of God fills our heart as the fruit of the Spirit and humility comes into our life, oftentimes we find ourselves starting to be able more easily to yield to other people, to be able to say no to ourselves, to say yes to others, to give up control. It leads us to be humble and loving and sacrificial. Notice, God's word calls for mutual submission generally among all relationships. That's what God's word calls for, that when we're living under the Holy Spirit, that we'll be yielding to one another, being humble and submissive and, and wanting to please others and help others. And life's not just about us and we're not striving for our way and, and being stubborn. When it said we're, we're yielding ourselves, wanting God's will and wanting what's best for other people. It's the Philippians 2 concept, which tells us do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. In loneliness of mind, value others better than yourself. And he says, and, and let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit begins to work in someone's life. We become more considerate of other people. We actually start thinking about, if I do this, how will that influence someone else? How will that in fact impact him or influence her? And instead of just considering what we want or we feel like, we start to think in a manner where we consider other people and we say, you know what, it's not about me. What would be best for them? Or how could I yield to them in this situation? How can I do what's in their best interest? And he says, why do we do that? Out of fear of God. The idea is because we humbly realize there is an almighty God who we give account to. And so we say, you know, out of fear and reverence for you, Lord, I want to stop being like that. I want to let your spirit help me to act different because we want to please him. You know, I encourage you this morning, as you look at these things in the word of God, perhaps sometimes we read these things and we say, wow, Lord, yeah, put, put my, your finger on my heart in regards to that. What's the answer? What's the answer? I don't know how I can change. You can't change yourself. But the spirit of God can change you. So the answer is, Lord, I want to change in this area. I want more than in my life. Lord, would you just fill me afresh with your spirit? Fill me afresh with your spirit. Let's stand together.